Hello and welcome to This Song, the podcast where artists talk about the songs that changed their lives and, if we're lucky, they give us a glimpse into their creative process. And I'm telling you what, in this episode, we got really, really lucky. That's because we get to hear from Tegan and Sarah. Now, usually we feature two different acts in this show, but this interview, like, when I started editing it, I I just couldn't make it short because there was so much good stuff in it. And so we here at Team This Song decided to focus just on Tegan and Sarah for this episode. Now, I'll let you know that this interview is longer than most of our interviews, but for real, it's worth it. So let's get started with Tegan and Sarah. You know Tegan and Sarah, right? Like. They're twins, they're Canadian, they've been writing songs and putting out records since the 90s, and over that time, their sound has evolved from, like, indie rock to unapologetic pop, and that's not something everyone can do, like, transition successfully to a whole new genre, but they did it, and they did it so successfully that, like, their 2013 record Heartthrob inspired Taylor Swift's 1989. Yeah, their new record, Love You to Death, came out in June, and they keep on evolving. They're pushing pop music into more political, sometimes challenging territory. And they came to Austin to play. And when they were here, they stopped by Studio 1A, which is our lovely performance space here at KUTX, the radio station where we make this podcast. And Afterwards, they sat down with me and talked about songs and songwriting and why they approached this record the way that they did. Plus, they let us all see their sister dynamic, which, like, as a sister, I totally appreciated. So here they are, Tegan and Sarah. Uh, Seventh grade. I'm just 12 years old, which sounds young for seventh grade, but I don't know. Do it differently in Canada. Um, and uh, a guy named Jason Ng, who was older than us, uh, he was this really cute skater guy that every girl liked. I was fascinated by him. Um, I loved his clothes and his hair, and he was very, very cute guy. And he, uh, I remember very clearly in the library, uh, bringing over Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream, and telling me to listen to song three. And I went home borrow- with, a, with a borrowed CD from Jason Ng, which was like very like I was very cool and you were like always basically he was your boyfriend yeah basically he was my boyfriend he basically gave me an engagement ring and so (laughs) my friends were very jealous but he gave me the cd and I put on today and literally the first whatever 30 seconds where it's just the uh single note melody of the song uh the main hook I just was like what is this I just felt like I was hearing something completely new and when the big crashing you know music comes in and starts um I just was like hooked already. And then it like, and then it quiets out sort of and it drops into that verse and Billy's voice starts. I became completely, completely obsessed. That record in particular, like like today, 
um, I became obsessed with, but then the entire album, I, I could sing every note, every melody, I could do all the guitar parts. I loved Today so much, but I mean, the Pumpkins became like my band. I had, my entire room was covered from floor to ceiling. Um, I... I, I, I was so obsessed with them. I mean, I was, when they came through on Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, I mean, we waited in line in a parking lot outside of like Marlboro Mall in Northeast Calgary, slept overnight. My mom slept in the minivan, making sure we weren't like murdered or kidnapped. And like, um, we got tickets and then I hysterically cried and begged my mom to let me also go to Vancouver, which was a flight. I had to fly. And I went with uh, my friend Shannon Gillette, who was also a big Pumpkins fan. We were the biggest, arguably, pumpkin fans in our in our group of friends and we saved up our money and my dad took us and we flew to vancouver i was after there school. too she's excluded me from the story but i also you did not come to vancouver yeah i sure did no way <laughs> see it's kind of insane actually that she totally just wrote me out i guess this is what life when sarah writes me out yeah uh, in fact i did you have to share a bed with dad because i definitely shared a bed with shannon i did i shared a bed with dad mm. and i, just I mixed you two up um i was so excited i was also part of the um the campaign to go see Smashing Pumpkins in Vancouver. In fact, I called the Greyhound and asked what the tickets were because my mom said she wasn't going to. But Sarah just omitted that fact. But, uh, I don't remember you there, but that's fine. It's, cool. The Pumpkins were a big, that that was my biggest, biggest band when I was in middle school and high school, for sure. Well, I mean, what were you listening to before the Smashing Pumpkins? Like, oh, we, this was the 90s, obviously, all, right? all the usual stuff that you would think. Like, we were totally alternative kids who had been influenced by our parents. So we listened to anything they listened to. So the obvious stuff, like... Of course, like Prince. Don't have to be beautiful to tell me all you And Bowie. All night. She wants a young American. And then uh, we had also, when we were little kids, we'd uh, listened to our parents' music, but then sort of got caught up in the propaganda of like New Kids on the Block. So I remember we wanted all the New Kids on the Block stuff and my parents were sort of like, okay, okay. Although apparently our first real obsession was Phil Collins. Yeah, which was going to be the song that I said that had a profound effect on me. But I remember laying in my waterbed because it was the 80s. So we had waterbeds. And Sarah and I never shared a room. We always had our own rooms. And so we had our own giant water beds, like tiny. Like there's crazy photos of us where we're like two years old and we're laying on a waterbed. Like it's kind of, I mean, weird parenting. The 80s were a different time, you know. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I can remember whenever whenever that record came out with Groovy Kind of Love on it, so we were probably five years old or six years old or something, and I just remember having this profound connection to that music, and as I got a little bit older and had my own little tape recorder in my room, I can remember laying in bed and listening to Groovy Kind of Love and imagining myself singing it. When I'm feeling blue, all I have to do is take a probably one of the earliest memories I have of wanting to be a singer. Although I never would have said that out loud and we never were in a band until we were much older, but I can remember 
something about the melody. Which actually is why I don't feel embarrassed about becoming a New Kids on the Block fan because I think like they had really strong melodies. First time was a great time. Second time was a blast. Third time I fell in love. Now I hold the last. I can see it in your walk. Tell them when you talk. Because a little kid, that's what you attach to. I mean that that's the only explanation for why little kids listen to Tegan and Sarah. I mean like <laughs> We're singing about really, really dark stuff, like really deep stuff, emotional stuff, often to intimate stuff. And, and yet there's all these little kids dancing and singing and they're, they're attaching to something totally different. They're not listening to the content. I had no idea what Groovy Kind of Love was about. Do you listen to lyrics now or do you hear melodies first and it takes you a while to get into Melody lyrics? first, always, yeah. Right on. Yeah, production and melodies, I think, um, I think lyrics are important, but if a lyric doesn't resonate with me and I love the melody, I'll just rewrite the lyric in my head and sing it wrong each time. What about you, Sarah? How, how do you uh, how do you approach it? Like, do you hear lyrics or Jeez, melodies? I don't or? know. I don't know if I <laughs> if I even know. I feel like I hear everything really kind of mixed up in my brain. A lot of times, it's not just melody. It is something about a combination of melody, counter melody, and lyrics. Like, there's something about the way someone's singing a certain string of syllables that I'll become really drawn to. Like, I really like that Nick Jonas song, "Jealous." It's, a, it's, a, it's probably one of his biggest hits, and there's just something about the way those blocks of words and melody come together that I just, I don't know, there's something very, there's actually something very satisfying and mathematical about it in my brain, and I, I really sort of feel like that's always what I'm striving to do when I'm marrying lyrics and, and, and melodies together. It's like fit the equation together there's so that something. it all equals something like... Yeah, you can, I mean, writing a hooky melody is only really part of it. You know, I think what... what sort of elevates something to the status where people want to hear it over and over again or it becomes addictive, like an earworm. I think it's, I don't think it's just a melody. I think it's a combination of what other melodies are in there and then what words and sort of, um, yeah, what syllables, like how, how you, how you're lumping things together in your brain, it sort of becomes almost sugary and exciting and you want to hear it over and over and over again. Was that kind of the thing? Did it do you think that's what happened when you heard Siamese Dream? Like it all kind of came together. I know speaking from from my own experience with Smashing Pumpkins because I mean we I also was I mean a massive fan. I'm not not crazy obsessive like Sarah was, but there was something specific about that record like that I think it's probably because of the age that it came into our lives and because it was one of the first records and bands that we became obsessed with that wasn't our parents' music, that there is something about the drums and the guitars that was so unique and different at, for that time, but also for our ears, like what we had been listening to, like Tom, you know, Tom Cochran. Springsteen like we were really in the like rock stage when that came out in our household and I think there was just it wasn't just what Billy was saying you know or his image which may not have even been relatable at the time it was it was the music it was the idea it was the concept it was everything also too it's probably the first time developmentally like because I was just on the precipice of becoming a teenager it was probably the first time I'd listened to music 
uh, and desiring even subconsciously hearing conflict in a, in a way mm -hmm. that represented mm -hmm. me. So, you know, when I was younger, I was probably listening to lots of crazy, you know, music with lots of conflict in it, but I was like <laughs> seven. So I don't know. I didn't know what anything <laughs> was. I didn't know what was really happening, but it was the first time I consciously was interested in the conflict of the music and the lyrics and the sentiment. And mm -hmm. I, uh, it represented me. I didn't know that. I couldn't have verbalized that at the time, but I certainly can articulate it now. Like I was, I was just about to become a very moody and a very uh, secretive, confused, conflicted teenager. And our, so our teenage years coincided with the grunge era. So yeah, like most timing. kids do. Most kids have to find something to sort of express themselves when they're a part of a world that you know, in their probably in their imaginations, don't at all represent them. And it was like Billy Corgan became what represented me and my conflict. One big. Why I remember too, too the, when the video came out, us sitting in the office downstairs and, and like just there's, there was just something so adolescent and rebellious about the imagery too, like all the videos and the It's scene interesting and, though, because you say that, because I was going to say like the other big artists that we loved around that time, obviously Nirvana. And Paul. And I remember both of those bands, I loved them, but they were, in my opinion, like visually, musically, they were really messy. I mean, they were very, to me, the, the thing that drew me to Smashing Pumpkins, and this is really true about my personality and my sort of character, is that I'm very, I'm buttoned up. I'm a Virgo. I'm, I really struggle to express my emotions, and I, I'm more cerebral, and I... I had a very disciplined uh, teenage bedroom. Like it was like everything had to be <laughs> organized. I had to make my bed. Everything had to be like put away. And there was something very anal retentive about Smashing Pumpkins. There, mm -hmm. Billy was a, he was a bit of a like, I was about to say tyrant, but I just, he was a very strong particular leader and he had a very strong aesthetic for every single record. And it was like the videos, I know he had his hand in. And I really identified with that as a teenager. Whereas, I loved Nirvana and, and Courtney Love, but I didn't necessarily identify with Kurt Cobain or Courtney Love because they seemed like out of control. And I, Billy seemed the opposite. He seemed very much in control. Like he was angry, but he was, but he was in control. About <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was, was an intelligence in. for me that I picked up like his lyrics and his sort of, yeah, there was something about, about him that really read to me as like being of course, like angsty and difficult and <laughs> ornery and whatever. But there was also something very controlled about that, which seemed very powerful to me. It's like finding a kindred soul out there. At the time, I certainly felt like, felt like that. Yeah. So when you guys started making music together, I mean, by that, by the time you started making music together, were you kind of beyond Smashing Pumpkins? Were you beyond all this? Yeah. Or no, no, well, because we started in tenth grade writing songs. Okay. So I definitely still, for sure. I think that it, what's interesting to me is that the output, the early output, it sounds nothing like a lot of the bands that we were listening to. Mm -hmm. But I just think that was probably some lack of skill and like understanding of how the instruments we had worked. So the only thing I really hear when I listen back to that stuff um, that in in any way resembles or shares any sort of DNA with the band or the songwriters we are now is just is, is our voices. If I gave you my number You can hear 
how we're using uh, very similar songwriting lyrical patterns that we still use to this day and I think probably a lot of that comes from very early childhood I think I find more probably in common with what my parents were listening to and when we were really young and and probably how we were influenced by that kind of songwriting so I don't we didn't sound like no one would have been like boy you sound like smashing pumpkins <laughs> I almost feel like that that becomes more of an aesthetic sonic choice when you are like we're gonna start a band and it's gonna sound like our favorite band the smashing pumpkins and new order or something we never did that we were just like whoa we just wrote a song listen like it was sort of like a bit uh like intuitive and and there wasn't there wasn't as much of a sonic connection to like the stuff that was probably being played in our rooms like 24 hours a day but also we were at that point in our lives starting to really understand that we were queer and I think music became a place for us to explore some of the feelings that we were having and probably a lot of the things that we wanted to say you know like there's a lot of passion that goes into performing right a lot of adrenaline and excitement and I think that it became a part of like the way that listening and and embodying and loving and being passionate about music and those other bands it became our way to explore our passion and and identity for ourselves was through music which is why I hated basically the first five years of our career because every journalist would be like it's like they tore a page out of their diary it's like you know <laughs> and I just thought it was so sexist that yeah. that they would talk about us that way it's, it's, but now I look back on it and I'm like oh we were just we were pouring our I mean we still pour our hearts into it but there's a craft right we're like we're exploring melodies and counter melodies and how to say this thing but say it in a different way than we ever have before and like it's about story and about digging into the, uh, uh, an experience that you've had and you've now had five years of perspective. Like songwriting is so much more complicated now, whereas in that early part of our career, we were truly just saying exactly how we felt in that moment, exactly like this thing that we had to get out of us. You know, there was just this like incredible intensity. You know? I hope I never figure out who broke your heart. Although it seems like with this new project, this is the most like open that you have been about sexuality and identity and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what was it about this record or like this time? I mean, I think it's, I think identity is probably a topic that a lot of artists, not just musicians, but just a lot of people are talking about right now. And that sort of probably is a mirror of what's happening in the social conversation across TV and film and, you know, politically. And so I I don't know that it's something that I didn't do on purpose in the past. In fact, I, I felt like in a lot of ways, Tegan and I somewhat muted ourselves in terms of our sexuality and our identity because we felt there were such negative re- repercussions in our in the early parts of our career. I mean, Tegan said about people, this even just an innocuous thing like, oh, a, a page torn from their diary. I mean, that's like so, it's so sexist. And it, you know, or, or there was almost a displeasure in how negative our music was. Like, you know, male reviewers being like, almost, almost implying like, 
like there, they were dis, there was a discomfort about like, why are they so upset all the time and angry all the time? And there's a desire, I think, for people to uh, experience women as pleasurable and easy and, smile. you know, and if, yeah, if you're going to be upset, smile while you're upset, would you? Like, why do you got to be so loud and gruff with your ugly girl voice, you know, like stop. And so <laughs> I think, you know, Tegan and I were strategic in terms of how we approached our messaging. And um, when it felt like we were being cornered and sort of interrogated about our identity, there was a natural reflex to sort of say, like, I don't want to talk about this. Why do I have to talk about this? We are out. We're gay. Who cares? You know, like, I don't want to have to discuss it. But now there's a sort of my, my, my new reflex is to be like, why can't I discuss it? It's interesting. It's identity is everything, religious, racial, whatever it is, like we should be allowed to talk about ourselves without apologizing to the majority that doesn't look or act or behave like us. And in my sort of mid thirties right now, I almost feel a rebellion coming in, in my, the way that I sort of talk to people and the way that I act. I don't want to be normal. I don't want to get married. I don't care that I might not be with the same person for the rest of my life. I don't want to be hate. I don't want to be heterosexual. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to believe that to be normal and to be accepted and have the same rights as other people that I have to be like other people all the time. And I think probably all of that, you know, was what, you know, made me start thinking, oh, I just, I want to write a song that's sort of political about gender and identity, but it's also just pop. You treat me like your boyfriend And trust me like a, like a very best friend Kiss me like your boyfriend You call me up like you were your best friend You turn me on like you were your boyfriend But I don't want to be your secret or I want to write a song that's kind of a love song to my girlfriend, but is also sort of a, you know, an, an acknowledgement that as much as I cared about participating in and being an activist with the same sex movement for marriage, I don't want to get married. And here's why. But I think right now, for a lot of different kinds of people, there is a bit of a like, hey, this space has been very specifically straight, heteronormative, whatever, uh, white. white, male for a long time. And even in our organization, it has been. Like, the majority of the people who have worked in substantial positions with us for the last 17 years, whether it be our agents, our managers, people at the record label, are white, straight guys. And Tegan and I have, you know, we've we've railed against that for a long time, whether it was at festivals or on radio or whatever. But at some point, we just looked inward and said, like, geez, how are we supposed to ask and demand that the industry change if we don't seem to be able to represent the change that we are asking for. And so, you know, we've done a lot more in the last, you know, two album cycles to make sure that we are hiring a more diverse group of people, really actively looking for women, for example, to fill positions that never, 
you know, have been like, have always been just dudes, like all the, our front of house, our lighting, our, our, our stage techs, our tour manager, our production manager, we are, we are trying to fill those positions with women because we are trying to, I guess, like live the example. We hope other people, um, will, uh, you know, maybe, uh, open their minds to, you know, to your original question, like about why we feel comfortable to do it now. I think it was very political for us. It was a game like early on in our career. I think we felt as Sarah, to borrow from what Sarah said, when we felt cornered to talk about our sexuality or our gender or, you know, homophobia or sexism in the industry, I was like, this is, you're going to, you're going to reveal that and then no one's going to want us at the party. So we kind of would reject talking about it, then get invited to the party and then talk nonstop about homophobia <laughs> and misogyny in the industry. You know, it was like, so for us, it was sort of like, it was a game, you know, we wanted to be here. We wanted to be represented and the world wasn't ready for that yet. And so we had to sort of, we had to kind of slalom through a lot of obstacles and, and now it's a lot easier, but it's still there. I mean, the world has not changed. You know, I love that people keep saying how much, you know, progress has been made and we get asked by journalists all the time, what are you going to do now that marriage equality happened? And it's like, well, yeah, we got marriage equality, which is awesome. Like, I mean, that's great. And it was huge. It was monumental and no one thought it was going to happen. And it's incredible, but it's also something predominantly within our community that white people want that privileged people want that you know a certain type of people want and like that's not the end like you know there's just so much more work to be done and I hate this idea that in the mainstream we think the fight is over it's an important part of of being educated or activated in any way about any cause. Tegan and I have leaned on people. We have asked for the support of so many people in order to accomplish certain things. And it would be, it would, it would just, it would be devastating to me to think that we would stop now. It's, it should be what's required of all of us that we continue to say, look, yeah, things are fine for me and Tegan. Tegan and I do just fine. We're successful. Mm -hmm. We can, we can sort of roll through life a little untouched right now by some of the things that are impacting people on a daily basis. And I think if your life is comfortable and easy, then you are in the perfect position to lend some of that privilege and power to other people and fight on their behalf or with them. Maybe I just feel more motivated now and, you know, in later on in our career, um, but I, I just think to myself, like, what are we doing? What would we be doing up here if we were just singing dumb songs that didn't have any meaning, or we didn't weren't leading lives that had meaning? I, I just feel like it's the only way I can balance the idea that Tegan and I are like these dancing clowns. Like, I'm just like, we have to do something of substance. Like, we have to. Stop Desire from Tegan and Sarah's new record, Love You to Death. And if you like this song, you should totally check out their NPR Tiny Desk concert. They, they play this really great stripped down version of this song and a couple of others. And I mean, really, for real, we got lucky, right? Like, you see how I had to keep as much of that interview as I did. Like, I couldn't cut it. It was too good. And this idea that they talked about at the end of the interview about doing something more with their art than just singing songs, of, of using their success to really say things and help change things. It's an idea that I'm starting to hear from a lot of artists. Like Benjamin Booker talked about wanting to be more than a song and dance man last season. And Nick and Kelsey from Local Natives talked about really similar ideas. And that interview will come 
later in this season. It's a conversation a lot of artists are starting to have with themselves and with their audience. And I, for one, am looking forward to hearing what more artists have to say on the subject. If you liked that interview with Tegan and Sarah, I hope you'll head to iTunes or Stitcher or the podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a review. I mean, ratings and reviews, they help us in lots of ways here at Team This Song. They help people find us in the vast landscape of iTunes and they let us know how we're doing and like they make everyone here on the team feel really, really good. So thanks in advance. If you heard any songs in this episode that you especially liked and want to check out, then head to the This Song page for this episode at KUTX.org, and you'll find the Spotify playlist with all the songs that we reference in this episode, played all the way through. And I'll also post links to the NPR Tiny Desk Concert and to Tegan and Sarah's Studio 1A interview, because really, you can't have too much Tegan and Sarah. And that's it. You have come to the end of another episode of This Song. This Song is a production of KUTX 98.9 in Austin, Texas. This episode was produced and edited by David Sanger and me, Elizabeth McQueen, with help from Peter Babb, Jackie Fuller, Kelly Seal, and Catherine McQueen. The interview with Tegan and Sarah was recorded by Cliff Hargrove. Taylor Wallace curates our Instagram account and does a really great job. And Kelly Seal is our most excellent intern. Thanks to Deidre Gott and Peter Babb for everything they do for this podcast. And yes, it is true. Our theme song is Mahout by Austin's own Hard Proof. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Our handle is at thissongktx. You can like us on Facebook and you can subscribe to this song along with the other KUTX podcasts, Austin Music Minute, Liner Notes, and Song of the Day on iTunes. Right on. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.